0: Welcome to The Stats, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and our guest today is Kendra James. Kendra is a woman who has worn so many hats. She was a founding editor at Shondaland.com. She is a writer, a podcast producer, and the author of the brand new book, Admissions, A Memoir of Surviving Boarding School. We talk today about the minor traumas of racism, writing in the bathroom, and figure skating. Yes, I know. This is a very fun episode. Our January Book Club pick is Passing by Nella Larson. We will be discussing the book on Wednesday, January 26th with Cree Miles. To stay connected with all things The Stacks and to support this show, consider joining The Stacks Pack. Head to slash The Stacks to get inside access to the show, hear bonus episodes, get discounts on merch, and a lot more. I want to give a quick shout out to our newest members of The Stacks Pack Adrian, Natasha Halam, Alex Rollison, Julie Dyers, Elisa Rapidos. Sarah Owens, Sierra Gallagher, Tess Test, Sarah Pennington, and Maria Rothenberg. This is an independent podcast, which means without the support of listeners like everyone I just named and the rest of the Stacks Pack, there would be no The Stacks. So thank you all so much for your support. And if you haven't yet, consider joining The Stacks Pack by going to patreon.com slash The Stacks. Okay, let's talk with Kendra James. All right, everyone. I am thrilled today. I am joined by Kendra James. She is the author of Admissions, A Memoir of Surviving Boarding School. Kendra, welcome to The Stacks. Hi. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. You have a lot of other jobs and titles, which we can talk about later, but I was giving them like the most book focused moment so that all of your people at Grand Central Publishing don't scream at me, (laughs) but you are like a multi-hyphenate human. No, Um, it's
1: fine. It's fine.
0: (laughs) We'll get there. We'll get there. Wait. Also, this is like, I just remembered because I just finished your book, but I feel like it's your birthday
1: soon. Yeah. Yeah. My birthday. So the book happens to come out on my birthday. I'm not (gasps) sure how I feel about that yet. We're going to see how it goes. We're going to see if this ends up being the last time I ever want to celebrate my birthday. (laughs) Oh my god, it's gonna go so great! That's such a good
0: omen. I love this for you.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's that that MLK birthday, a nice like alignment. So. Got it.
0: So you have the long weekend birthday moment. Yeah, this is great. So you're going from a long weekend into your pub day yeah. into like publicity <laughs> craziness, and then this episode will air the day after your birthday. So yes. people listening now, you now you know when Kendra's birthday is. It's the 18th.
1: A pure Perfect. Capricorn, just a pure strain of Capricorn.
0: I love that. <laughs> okay. My dad was a Capricorn and both of, I have twins and they're Capricorns. Oh they're my God. December. My kids are the first day of Capricorn.
1: Oh, December Capricorns. Tricky. I
0: don't know what any of it means. Oh. Apparently you guys are stubborn and hardworking. Yes. That's what I know.
1: Yeah. That's like the, that is the good basis to, uh, okay. yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting that sense.
0: Okay. Let's talk about you. Let's talk about you. 30 seconds or less or so. Can you tell us about the book?
1: Yes. Admissions is a memoir of the three years that I spent uh, at a New England boarding school, the Taft School in Connecticut. Why is that unique? Because I was a Black kid at a boarding school. I was the first African-American legacy to graduate from Taft. And then I kind of immediately went into working in independent schools when I graduated from college, which was not the plan, but it's what happened. And it caused me to do a lot of reflecting, especially once we entered the Trump years. Well, actually, even like during the Tea Party years, I just started doing like a lot of reflecting as to like what it meant that I had gone to one of these schools, what it meant that I was now recruiting for one of these schools. And it eventually all culminated in this memoir.
0: (laughs) Okay. I have so many questions about boarding school, prep school life, which I'm going to sort of avoid because a lot of that's in the book. (laughs) But I just want you to know that the cover of the book is perfection. That's a real picture of you from high school.
1: So the cover of my book is actually our senior photo, our senior class photo, which is taken at the, and I don't know what they do now, but back when I was there, uh, you would have a senior dinner at the headmaster's house like three, um, actually, and we don't use the term headmaster anymore. We use head of school. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Some 2020, things 2020, what's up? <laughs> um, so yeah, we would have dinner at the head of school's house about three nights before graduation, and they would gather us all for that picture, which we could then purchase for like $40 or something. Um, oh and so yeah, that is the picture, and everyone's faces are blocked off, but you can still really kind of tell um, my face is uncovered, and I'm sitting next to one of the girls who's actually in the book, Callister, is on one side okay. and uh, another girl is next to me. And she was actually a we used to call them a PG, uh, a postgrad. And so okay. she was another black girl, but she was only there for one year, my senior year. So I actually didn't really know her that well. But there's three of us in that picture. And then there were, I believe, 10 of us total, like 10 black kids. Oh total. Gosh. in my year, there were six girls and four boys, and the rest of them are scattered throughout the rest of the picture.
0: Oh my God. Okay. So you go to the school, you are legacy. so your dad went there. you're going in, you're sort of like, okay, you know, you you mentioned in the beginning of the book, the woman who's doing your hair when you say you're going to boarding school is like,, oh, what did you do? Like thinking yeah. <laughs> that you got like kicked out of school or something. but that's not the kind of boarding school you're going to. You're going to like fancy pants, you know, I think you said Roger Ailes' this kid ended up going there. Like, this like, sure fancy, fancy school. <laughs> when did it dawn on you, either in school or after school, that, like, you're in a place that is remarkable and perhaps not in the ways that the school thinks that it's remarkable?
1: Oh, God. See, that's that's actually really interesting because I knew, like, I knew from the jump that I was going to a place that was, like, very st- like out of the ordinary. Um, I was a figure skater. Like I've been a figure skater since I was like eight. And I was suddenly going to a school that had two ice rinks on the (laughs) campus. (laughs) Which is insane. When I read the book, I was like,
0: skating skating what is she talking is this a metaphor like what and then you're like my sow count I was like oh she means skating on ice
1: yeah like there are two full-size ice rinks sitting on the campus one was built I believe like by hand or in part by hand by the students in the 30s and then the the other one is like this sort of brand new uh, or new-ish like state-of-the-art Olympic rink Anyway, so I knew that, like, things were weird and this was, like, not normal. I didn't really, I feel like, take the time to reflect about the other ways in which it wasn't normal until I left Taft. And, like, immediately when I got to Oberlin, where I went to college, like, that was kind of like when things really started becoming clear. Because I talk about this in the book a lot, where when I was growing up in this town, Maplewood, New Jersey, um, very diverse, like, very much like you played on the street until the lights came on and like my friends yeah. and I wandered all over the place. And I had a really close knit group of friends there. And it was really easy for me to make friends with like whoever the hell I wanted to. Um, mm-hmm. And that same thing happened almost instantly when I got to Overland. Like I sat down with a group of people. I remember at like freshman orientation the first night in the dorm. And it was just like instantly like, oh, these people are my best friends. And like still mm-hmm. to this day, like the people that I talked to that night are like two of my best friends. In the world and it was just so much easier and i felt so much more relaxed and so much myself on that more myself on that campus like even just like being able to talk about my interests without like having to couch it in like oh i know this is weird but Mm. it just instantly i like came back to being myself and so that's like really when i started to know that like i didn't know exactly what about taft had been off-putting and like or not off-putting but what about it had been outside of the ordinary or unusual but I recognized a change instantly,
0: right. One of the things you talk about in the book a lot, obviously, is about being black and like the microaggressions or you know, other ways to say that less kind is the racism, okay. both small and large. And you have this line, I think that's like microaggressions are the tapestry of racism at Taft. And I just I mean, I love that. and you and later in the book, you talk about sort of, the, the minor trauma being something that you have to sacrifice in order to achieve the dream, in this case, the dream that your parents have for you, but also, I think, more broadly, the dream of being American. It's sort of what ta Coates talks about in his book, like the dream. It's the same thing. But I'm just thinking as someone who is also Black, who we're, we're about two years apart, um, and I also don't remember understanding racism as racism at that age. And like when I reflect back on so many of the things that people said and, you know, about my hair or my skin or whatever, whatever it was, you know, you have this scene where they're talking about adopting African American babies from Africa. And I'm like, do they know that those are just African babies? Um, But, you know, don't mind me. But you have like all these little moments that come up throughout the book. And I'm just wondering, like, As you're thinking back on all of this, when did it click for you that that was in fact racism and not just like how people talk like that you couldn't justify it away?
1: Here, I know exactly like what it was. So I again, I was at Oberlin and I would have this habit of like I would tell stories about Taft in like sort of like this very purposefully like funny way, like stories about like some really like disturbing shit. Like I would. For instance, there's a story in my book about um this kid who like kind of like stalked me for a while. <laughs> um, that story would fucked me
0: up. Yeah. I was like, holy shit, this is like exactly what it used to be like. Yeah. On the internet.
1: Yes. And he like and he was a kid, he was a, a classmate. I mean, he was older than me, but he was a classmate on campus and he was just like essentially stalking me. And so I would tell stories like this to my college friends and be like, haha, isn't that funny? And the reaction that I would get from my friends would be like what the fuck are you talking about? That's not normal. That is not a normal thing to experience at a school, especially not at a school that costs $40,000 a year. Right. Um. And so that, like, that really helped me start. It didn't happen immediately. It was not like an instant switch, but that is definitely part of how I started reframing a lot of what happened. And I remember telling uh, some friends too about like this, uh, one of the other things I talk about in the book, which is like this article that this girl wrote, and it was a really racist article in yeah. the school paper, uh, basically accusing black kids of self segregating themselves and like not wanting to make friends with white kids and making white kids deeply uncomfortable on campus with all of these events that we got thrown thrown for us and using quotes. Right. Right. But <laughs> yeah, I I would tell my friends about that stuff and and. They thought it was so odd and and so outside of the ordinary and that really helped me start rethinking that and like taking like comparative american studies courses essentially like right. just getting a broader uh educational lens like really helped me start rethinking some of these things
0: one of the things that's very cool about you and for me as someone who talks to writers, is like it's very clear, clear in your book that you were always a writer. You did like fan fiction-y things. Like you talk about writing a lot. Um, and so I'm wondering at what point you realize like this is something that I want to write about. And then from there, because you wrote articles, this is something that I actually want to turn into a full-length book. Like how did that come to you?
1: Um, gosh, I used to write for a site called Racial Issues, and we did uh, cultural criticism where like pop culture intersected with race. And every so often I would like sort of sprinkle in uh, some boarding school stuff and like where I had gone to school. But Mm. honestly, at that point, I was a little self-conscious about it because I was new to writing. I was new to writing in like the race and pop culture space. And there was, I think, a part of me that really felt like Having gone to a boarding school, like in a place that was so traditionally white, kind of lowered my like street cred in terms mm-hmm. of writing a little bit. And so I really like I I pulled away from it uh, a bit. But then a girl wrote a girl wrote an article in The Wall Street Journal uh, complaining about not getting into the colleges that she wanted mm. to get into um and was basically this is like an evergreen article. Yes, yeah, I think we get yeah we get two a year essentially yeah, at least at least. Um, and she was she was complaining about affirmative action and saying that like basically, uh, and she blamed a lot on indigenous people. I remember indigenous people were like a big um, part of her anger, okay. and so after that, I wrote a piece in response to her where I actually spoke about sort of the entitlement that I felt. Um, coming out of a place like Taft and going through the college process, they really kind of do put this like expectation on you at a mm-hmm. school like that, that you are going to go to an Ivy, you're going to go to a little Ivy, or you're going to go to one of the Seven Sisters, um, like places that with that name recognition. And you kind of, whether it's direct or not, you absorb that into a place where it does sort of become like entitlement. Like you feel like mm-hmm. you should be able to go there. And because I was a legacy at Taft, my dad, he had gone to Brown. And so I applied to Brown and I was very, like, very sure I was getting into Brown. And I didn't get into Brown. I had a, like, minor meltdown over it. I felt like I deserved to be there and I didn't understand, like, what they were thinking. Um, And so point being, I, like, wrote about all of that emotion and sort of, like, deconstructing it. And what I had learned mm. since then about, A, the admissions process and, B, like, what deserve really means. And that was the first time that I really wrote a lot about my boarding school experience. Um, and from there it became a little bit easier to open up more about it um, as time went on. And I think I think when I knew I was gonna turn it into a book was after my 10 year reunion, where I went up and well, a little bit after my five year reunion, which I was there for like two hours, got overwhelmed, and then uh, left before any of the evening celebrations. And I went and saw Bridesmaids one and a half times <laughs> Um, and then, like, cried over a meal at TGI Fridays before getting a lot of piercings. Um, so that tells you how bad experience went. <laughs> so
0: it was super chill day. You had a great time. Great time. Really relaxed.
1: Yeah. But after my 10-year um, reunion, I had this, like, experience where I was talking to classmates who didn't realize um, that a friend, uh, like, a, a Black kid who had been very, like, very much a part of our uh, friend group of Black and li- Latinx students. Um, he had passed away. And it was like a really bad passing away. Like he had threatened a friend with a firearm and then turned it on himself when the cops were called. So it was a very bad situation, but it had made like the news and like people knew about it to some extent. But none of the white kids that I talked to at that reunion knew he had passed away. And there was just like something about that that really kind of like clutched at me Mm. and really like re-emphasize the fact to me that like a lot of these stories the stories of black kids and brown kids at these schools like not only aren't told but also just sometimes really feel forgotten uh by their other classmates and so that just like really sort of um like got me moving in the direction of wanting to make this into a full a fully thought out uh piece of writing
0: and thinking about sort of like this almost coming as like a response in some ways to writing this book coming as almost as a response in some ways to the students that you saw at the reunions and to that experience and being back on the campus. How did you think about the audience for this book? Who were you writing to communicate with? Like, who were you talking to?
1: That took a long time to figure out because (laughs) my background. So my background in writing, like I write online um, Mm -hmm. and I write usually in like 1200 to like 2500 were chunks that's like usually an article length and so you have to do like so much information cramming into that space Mm -hmm. and like sometimes like laying things out for people in a very a plus b equals c method and so when i started writing i was doing a lot of that and my editor asked me the same question um and she really helped me realize that i did not have to write this uh for i did not have to explain racism to people Mm -hmm. and i didn't have to really delve into I guess like what makes racism tick kind -hmm. of I -hmm. could really just write about my experiences and what happened and what I have learned since then rather than going into like the whole history uh, behind anything and so that really helped me unlock the fact that like this book while it cannot speak to the experience of every of every black student or every like black girl even on a campus because as I talk about like I come from like even some in some ways like a more privileged background than a lot of my classmates at the time. I hope that it can speak to something in every black experience on a campus. And that's like really who I'm writing it for. I'm writing it for the students who have been there and I'm very much writing it for the students who are still there now. Not just at Mm. Taft, but at all of the schools. The book changed a lot after uh, June of 2020.
0: Sure, Um, because you started earlier.
1: Yes, I started writing this in like December of 2019. Uh, So this was a pandemic book. Okay. Okay. And things really changed after that June, when a lot of the schools, uh, these sort of accounts on Instagram started popping up called Black at, uh, with the name of a school at the end of them, and I was scrolling through them at like so many schools, and all the stories were the same. And Mm -hmm. they would put the class year of whoever submitted at the bottom of the cards, and the stories were going back as far back as like the 70s. And then there were stories from like 2019. And at that point, I was like, Oh, okay, so I really am still writing this to in some ways address a problem that fully has not changed um, in the 14 year in the 16 years since I left.
0: Right. And you you talk about in the book, like this idea of responsibility, and that sort of partially being like why you have stayed connected to the school Taft specifically in this in this case, as opposed to like the admissions thing that you were doing. I'm wondering, like. Do you feel like your presence has made a difference? Do you feel like the school is accountable to you and obviously not just you? Or do you feel like. It's something that like you're that you are holding on to hope for or like, I don't, I just am really curious about that, about like that responsibility aspect and like your presence being connected to that.
1: I wouldn't say that they're, they, I don't feel that they are responsible okay. uh, to me <laughs> or beholden to me in any way. And I, I think that the, their process is really still ongoing. And I think sure. that June of 2020 um, sort of, peel back the foil on some things that were like really still like fucked up there. Yeah. And like I said like it it really struck me that a lot of the stories were just still the same stuff mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. I had been dealing with from 2003 to 2006. Even that article that I mentioned that the girl wrote in the school paper, um my like one of my big complaints about that and I write about it in the book is that the school paper has a, a faculty advisor. So like an adult should have read that before it was printed and been like, "Oh dear, we have to do something about this."
0: Right. And
1: in 20, I believe it was January of 2017, um uh, and soon after the school paper did vanish from the internet. You can't get it anywhere uh, online. Gosh. Um but there was an article, I can't remember the headline on it, but the content was the same. It was just another it was yet another article um blaming black students for self-segregating and saying that that makes white students uncomfortable on campus mm. and like all of this stuff. So yeah, it's a cycle. I, I, I really think of these experiences at these independent schools as cycles, because what happens is they get publicly outed, like with the Instagram stuff, which is right. the biggest outing that any of them have ever ha- have had at this point right. in terms of race, I would right. say. Right. Um, and once that comes out, they do something. And then it kind of dies down until the next big thing happens.
0: Right. I mean, it's like a microcosm of the rest of the country in a lot of ways. You know, everybody (laughs) was like super into accountability and et cetera, et cetera. And here we are. Yeah. (laughs) Can we get an at-home test, Joe? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Can we get a day off work? Like, what's going on, guys? We're just dying. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. We did it in 2020. We're good. Okay. I want to talk. About your petty revengeness <laughs> because I live for this. Okay. I can relate listeners of the show know that I am petty, I am competitive, I love a revenge moment. I also love a detailed note taking moment. So I need you just to just a little teaser from the book. Can you just talk about your inst- AOL instant messaging situation? Because when I read this, I gasped, I was taken aback, I was blown away, and I was fucking impressed, to be quite honest. So please let, let people know what you did. And then I have a real question that follows that up.
1: Totally. <laughs> um, yeah, no, as a result of like some like pretty specific trauma, which we can spoil, I won't spoil now, but maybe if it comes up later. But like, yeah, <laughs> as, as a result of some pretty specific trauma that happened in my sophomore year, I had already been a journaler. I loved uh, the live journal, dead journal, all of that stuff. But I was not very consistent with it. It wasn't an everyday thing. After that happened, after like what happened in my sophomore year happened, it became an everyday thing. So I was like chronicling my life down to the last detail. And in addition to that, I basically, every time I had an AIM conversation, which was, I mean, like any millennial, a lot. Um, a lot. I would save it. And at first the process was I saved it to a floppy disk. <laughs> if, if your <laughs> listeners know what those are. Um, they I, do. Okay. I'm old. They okay. know. <laughs> I would save it to a floppy disk and I would save them by people's screen names. So I had a full record of every conversation that I was having with anyone on a daily basis and then I would print them out and I would put them into binders also separated by tabs so that I had a full <laughs> record of everyone that I had spoken to and then about like a a year into doing that like sometime in my junior like my late junior or early senior year I actually from li- like someone on live journal helped me like code a thing that just did it automatically So every AIM conversation that I have just saved automatically onto my computer, which is actually how for that stalking story that I mentioned earlier, I had actually kind of forgotten about that. And we needed something to like fill in my second year because sort of Mm -hmm. the two big events are happening in my uh, sophomore and my senior year. We needed something for junior year and I was scrolling back through my AIM conversations and suddenly I remembered William. (laughs) Oh my uh, god! So those, Fucking William. so those conversations are actually printed verbatim in the book wow. because I have them all.
0: <laughs> okay, so now here's my serious follow-up yeah. question: Were you at all shocked, surprised, confused, or anything when you went back and read? like your contemporaneous notes of like who you were like were you like holy shit Kendra like who is this freak on your screen name
1: yes um no I had like especially like my journal entries like you Mm. can the I talk a lot about this but like the respectability politics were like there they were there hardcore and I was like even as I was like friends with people and like settling in like I was judging people just like left and right like really based on a lot of the standards that my my parents had given me um so that is like that for me was like the hardest thing to Mm. look at going back and even just like this one like one girl who like I had a good reason to not like but like just some of the things that I called her were like very they actually and the thing is like they weren't actually societally considered that bad in 2004 2005 but now it's like oh no that is not language we should be using (laughs) um but yeah no it's like stuff like that was like definitely um uh, definitely present and then like on just like a a less serious note like god I used squee so much there's a lot of squee what is squee like s-q-u-e-e that was like a big fandom like you would Uh. like someone would like I don't know, show you a hot picture of like Orlando Bloom or something, and you, I, and you would, that would be the response, like squee. <laughs> oh,
0: I've literally never heard that. Yeah. So we have a lot in common, you and I, but the one place we differ is like the sci fi, oh, yeah. <laughs> that stuff. That's where I was like, it's interesting that I have no idea what she's talking about. But oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other like big thing I do want to touch on a little bit is like, What I really appreciated about the book is that while, of course, you bring up like the major traumas of like culturally for black people, like these like large moments like uh, Amadou Diallo, like you talk about Trayvon Martin, you talk about like these big moments. You are also talking a lot about like this minor trauma and what you experience. And I feel like, you know, one of the things that I think did come out of 2020 was like people realizing that. Those, like, minor traumas or, like, microaggressions, again, just, like, smaller doses of racism, are actually super harmful and, like, damaging. And while, you know, it's not being shot by a police officer, that, like, there is racism in between being assassinated by a police officer and, you know, being the thing that happens to you sophomore year we're not going to tell you guys what it is. You have to read the book. I don't know. (laughs) I'm acting like it's like this huge spoiler. It's just, it's the event. It's a large event in sophomore year, but that there is like this huge difference. And I'm wondering like for you, as you're writing this book, were you ever insecure about talking about that or feeling like the things that you experienced like weren't enough or like weren't worthy of this conversation? Or did you feel comfortable and confident knowing that like you weren't alone in that and that it needed to be aired out as well?
1: Oh no, absolutely. Like I was very insecure, like talking about like that stuff. Um, mostly because like as I said before, for me it's like reframing a lot of it because when I would talk about this stuff again in college, like I always did it with like a humorous bent to be right, like right, right. Ha, ha ha. It was like it was nothing, like it happened, but we got through it and we don't need to dwell. Right. Um, so to like finally actually have to do introspective work on it was very difficult. And I was, I was in, <laughs> I was in therapy. Through the point of like writing the um the proposal and like selling the book, and then the pandemic happened, um, right. and I was not in therapy, and so I actually wrote <laughs> a lot. I actually wrote a lot of the book while not in therapy, and then um picked it back up once I was like comfortable. I was like, oh, I guess video therapy is not going anywhere. I have to right. get used right. to it, um, and so I started going back and and doing more work on sort of processing a lot of it. Um, also while I was still writing which really helped, um, Mm -hmm. really helped like me become more secure in talking about some of the smaller stuff because I, there is that complex there where you're, where you're like, is this like really important to bring up when you have all of this other stuff going on, not just in the Mm -hmm. larger world, but like even bigger things happening at these schools, like more important stuff than complaining about like an article in the paper. But I've come to terms with the fact that like those things are so important because when it comes down to it like you're you're somewhere between the age of 13 and 18 um right when any of this is happening and you're living for the most part unless you're a day student you're living away from home with without your parents and often times perhaps without a surrogate parent of color or you're forced on a surrogate parent of color who like maybe you don't mesh with because we don't all mesh together. Um, So it's like, who are you leaning on for support in these situations? And so that really also amplifies um, the the impact that even the smaller stuff can have.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm glad you did because I feel like so much, it's easy to write off so much as like, oh, this is an extreme thing. But like so much of what happened to you and your book was like, felt so, you know, regular, not that you're regular, but like (laughs) that these events felt like so normal, like I could imagine them having happened to me or they did happen to me in some version. And so I really appreciated that because I think so much focus is on like these huge, you know, huge systemic moments of racism and huge as that, and people are like, "Oh, it's not about the individual, and it's not about the individual." But here's some ways that individuals are being fucking racist to teenagers. You know, yeah. like here, like just these are some really great examples of just like racism popping out. Yeah, and, like you, yeah.
1: No, you. I mean, you mentioned the adoption conversation, and that's one that like I always come back to, where like I didn't really know what to do in the moment because it was just. um it was just happening, um, and it was just—it's a- an insane story. Yeah, <laughs> it's insane. But like, in some ways, that's like the other angle that I definitely tried to keep in mind while I was writing this. While I don't necessarily excuse the behavior of a lot of the white kids that I went to school with, I also did try to keep in mind throughout this whole process that they were also 13 to 18, and sure. that they were coming from backgrounds very often where like we were the even though there were only 10 of us in our class like we were still the most black kids that they were ever been around hanging around with um and so honestly like for a girl who was growing up on the upper east side which one of the girls in that that story was of new york city like she probably it's very possible that she did only know Black kids who had been adopted by white parents from other countries. It's right. deeply possible that that is the right. only reference point she had. Um, that doesn't make it any less bad. Right. <laughs>
0: um, right, right but right. that
1: is just the truth of her probable experience <laughs> in 2003.
0: Right. right, right, right. And speaking of things that uh, are totally out of my personal experience, how are there two callisters in your class? Oh. What is that name? Is that a name on the East Coast?
1: So here's the thing. The every name in the book has been changed. Uh, oh, okay. With the exception of our headmaster, and okay. literally that was only because there have only been like five headmasters in the history of the right. school. So it's like uh, you're you gonna figure it out. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and nothing bad is written about him. He's fine. He's cool. Got it. He's a cool dude. Uh, some of us had crushes on him back in the day. <laughs> I'm gonna Google him as soon as this yeah. is done to see if he was a babe. Um, <laughs> but so. It's funny because they both they were both girls with C names and were, one of them was a C and one of them was a, K one was a K and it was the same name and it was just like looking back on that and that and that relationship like just long story short for those who haven't read it yet um my best friend found a new best friend of the same name of a new of a person that I was also becoming close with which caused massive jealousies yes. <laughs> uh, throughout all of senior year. And so, yeah, no, that was a really weird situation. It was very, very strange. And (laughs) I don't know how it happened.
0: so weird i was just like taken aback by the name but if you change the name then you know how did you change the names how did you decide what to call people
1: honestly like just looking i would be i wrote the book in my literally wrote the book in my bathroom
0: i was gonna get to that question it's coming up in the second half after we take our breaks (laughs) very soon
1: um yeah so i would sometimes if i just like couldn't find uh a name i just looked up onto one of the posters in our bathrooms. And that just became the name. Some of them I tried to keep a little bit more, like a little closer to what the person's actual ID was. um, But some of them are really just random and out of nowhere.
0: (laughs) I love this. Okay. Speaking of my teased break, we're going to take a break and then we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Okay, we are back. We're coming to my favorite part of the episode where we get to talk about your process and and snacks. So, you sort of teased this before, also. You wrote the book in your bathroom, which there's a great article in Catapult that you wrote about it, which I will link to in the show notes for people. But I always ask folks this so you can give us sort of the abridged version. How do you write? How often? Where are you? Can you have music on? Do you have snacks and beverages? Do you have rituals? Are you lighting candles? Are you, you know, like doing a a yoga class before? Like what's your vibe for writing?
1: So I kind of want to give you both. I want to give you my... Pre-pandemic slash yes. the plan sure. of how I intended to write this book and how it sure, actually sure. happened. Um, <laughs> pre-pandemic, I was a coffee shop bitch. Like, I w- I okay. did not write in the house ever because I very much liked to separate uh, workspace from lived space. And I okay. have yet to be privileged enough to live in, a, in an apartment with an office. Um okay. So I It's
0: coming. We're gonna manifest that. 2022. Fingers we're getting you an office. Are
1: crossed. <laughs> um, Let's do it. So yeah, no, I, I wrote at coffee shops. Um I like to have uh like beverage in my hand. It's usually like a coffee or a tea. And I do listen I listen to music no matter where I'm writing. My Spotify wrapped this year the top listened artist was Hans Zimmer, because I that's okay. what I was listening to all year what while I was writing. writing. Um and then the other ones <laughs> Or just like smatterings of sort of, uh, of billboard toppers from like Got basically it. 03 to 06. I wrote it, I wrote to a lot of Kanye um, because mm-hmm. College Dropout was my absolute favorite, favorite album in high school. So I okay. listened to that a lot. And then, yeah, just like a mixture of billboard stuff from back then. And so I wrote how I ended up writing the book was with all that music I still did manage to have warm beverages but I did write it in my bathroom which is (laughs) and people people ask how and it's because it is basically the size of a third bedroom in New York City our apartment is so weirdly laid out um you could fit a twin bed in there if you took out like all of the bathroom (laughs) stuff um and so there's a built-in vanity and desk area and I just kind of once my husband and I knew that we were like stuck in the house we were going to be locked down I kind of just turned that into into my space um and wrote there and he luckily I I was very lucky because he was super okay with it and very supportive and very okay with occasion like occasionally peeing into a Gatorade bottle which I never (laughs) asked him to do but I think he just took it upon himself to like really try not to bother me (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> it, you know what? It takes a village yeah. to write a book,
1: okay? You have to all sacrifice. Yeah. So um, that is that is where I wrote it. And yeah, I wrote it to the same soundtrack. Um, we have an espresso machine, so I would make increasingly elaborate okay. coffee drinks <laughs> over the I went through like a lavender <laughs> latte phase where I was Ooh. like making my own lavender syrups the night before and going, Love it. doing that. Were there
0: any snacks or is it weird to eat in the bathroom? I
1: don't. So I don't eat while I write. Um, okay. And usually because I... I eat like a snake anyway, which is like I have like one meal a day. I see. And then like I'm kind of, and then like maybe candy at night.
0: (laughs) What kind of candy? Talk about candy. Um, Say more.
1: Oh gosh. It really, so I'm seasonal. (laughs)
0: Okay.
1: Okay. Throughout most of the year, it's jelly belly, specifically tutti frutti, bubble gum, uh, and hot cinnamon.
0: You talk about jelly beans in the book. I uh, forgot. Yes. I knew this about you. Oh yeah, yeah. No,
1: it's, that's been a thing like forever. And then once Halloween rolls around, they release like this kind of Twizzler that I really like that isn't available Ooh. for the rest of the year. It's the two okay. small ones in a packet. I love okay, those Okay, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, yes, yes. And, then, and you love Nerd Rope. I, yes. I, nerd Rope, not so much anymore, but I was a big okay. nerds rope, Nerd Rope person in high school.
0: Nerd Rope was big in high school. Yes. I used to go to the 7-Eleven with my best girlfriend and we would get 7-Eleven Diet Coke from <laughs> the fountain. It had oh, to be fountain really so with the green straw. Very nice. important, and then nerd rope, like tons of it.
1: It's really because they well, also because back then they were sixty nine cents in nerd rope. I remember, yeah. like, or at least where I was getting them. I remember, yeah, they were this. cheap. Yeah, yeah they They're were like cheap. Two dollars now. I I was at a Walgreens the other day, and I was shocked. Um, Wait,
0: I have to correct the record. Yeah. I said fountain. It was not fountain. It was a bottle. It was a. Tw- it was the <laughs> bottle of diet coke with the straw. <laughs> the fountain is from McDonald's. I have a lot of feelings about Diet Coke in case anyone wants to do a podcast about Diet Coke. I'm available. Hi. Uh, <laughs> anyways. Okay. Wait, I have another question though about your writing process, because I read this in the article that not only do you listen to music, but you also have a cafe sounds yes. thing. So I have Tell people th- about that. That's so weird. There's
1: this app called <laughs> Coffitivity. I can never spell it, but it, it's called Or I can never like pronounce it I'll link it in the
0: show notes. Yeah. It's got a lot of vowels. It's doing a lot. Yes. A lot (laughs) is going on with the spelling.
1: Um, And so what I would do, this is a very elaborate process, but I would get a Bluetooth speaker, set up the coffee sounds to play (laughs) on the Bluetooth speaker. But then, and I would pump them up kind of loud because then I'm wearing, I have my favorite pair of headphones, which is the, um, the Sony MX like 100s or something. Noise canceling headphones. They're amazing. I put those on. I'm playing music through there, but I can still sort of hear mm. the rumbling of the cafe in the background. And Uh-oh. that kind of helps me like between that and the fact that I'm then drinking like a bespoke latte oh
0: <laughs> kind of
1: helps me like trick my brain into thinking that I'm not in my bathroom yes, until someone this. knocks on the door.
0: <laughs> okay. But so the other part of this question, which I didn't really ask exp- expressly explicitly is that you also have like a major day job Yeah. so how did you balance Well, tell people what that is and then how did you balance writing with all of your other work that you do
1: when i was writing the book i was the managing editor of star trek.com and i was the managing editor of star trek.com during a moment that i think a lot of star trek fans right now are calling like our renaissance because right. they're at when i left i think there were like four shows four or five shows on the air so oh my god it was a very busy position. Um, I had to travel. It was a, a five day a week, I mean, it was a 40 hour a week job, sometimes more. And so I mean, the sad answer to your question is that I just didn't have a weekend from okay. des- like December, yeah, December 2019 until June of this year, I like kind of just I would go out like weekend nights. Oh um, and like I would do like the occasional brunch, but I really like I was writing um, wow. whenever I wasn't working because I I didn't take I could didn't really have the luxury of taking a book sabbatical because like my husband, he works. However, he works in live events. Mm. And so once the pandemic happened, it was like the income was going like our combined income had gone down. Right.
0: Um, oh, my gosh. Terrifying.
1: Yeah. So it was it was definitely um <laughs> it was an interesting process. It was a very interesting process. Um, but then by the time the book, by the time I turned in my final edits this June, I was actually in the process of leaving there. And now I'm a podcast producer, mainly. And like one of the real reasons of that was because at Star Trek, I was editing other people's writing. So it was like constant deluge. It was like, I was either writing at home and then I was getting to work, editing other people's writing. And then I would get edits back from my editor, Maddie. And then I'm like editing my own writing. It was just like a constant cycle. And I was I was done. I could not look at anyone else's writing, my own included, uh, towards the end of that process.
0: (laughs) Oh, my gosh. And now you produce podcasts. And you are sitting there answering my questions, but you're thinking to yourself, "How could I do this better?" And you know what? Good no, for you. never. I love this. Never. I love this for you because I. Well, I read your book. I know you're petty. I know you're thinking about. I know you're thinking about it. I love it. I'm here for this. This
1: is why I like How, This is why you're here. Let me ask you a question. How petty do I come off? That's like, <laughs> my husband's reading no. the book now, and like, that's his. Like, he's like, no. The only thing I'm worried about is that people might think you're terrible. <laughs> like,
0: no. Oh my god. It, no, it's so great. It, you're not. It's not okay. Well. Let me actually preface this with My obsession and like love language is like talking shit, being petty. I remember every little detail so that I can like talk about it later. So for me, I saw a kindred spirit and I was like, Kendra is awesome. I love her. If I was like a sensitive person who like believes in like forgiveness and letting go, I would think that maybe you should go to more therapy. But for me, I was like, this is a person I love, I could hang out with, we could talk shit for years. Like we could make sure that some things happened. Hermione, Emma, she would not have gotten away with it if we were together.
1: Uh, I mean, here's, here's (laughs) what I will say. Like I can tell where I have had growth (laughs) in the ways in which people are really not identified. (laughs) Got it. Um, That's where like, I can tell like the biggest areas of growth have come because like, I could have given more details about sure. some people in like sure. high profile jobs. Um, got got and it. I chose not it. to. Good for you. See,
0: that's yeah. great. I yeah. will cannot write a book because I will be like, and the social security number is, and right. they drive this kind of car and this is their address in case, you know, anybody wanted to go egg
1: their house. Uh. Yeah. I mean, in, yeah, in some places it really, it came back down to like what I was saying before about like really actively throughout the process, process of writing, like trying to afford myself like in the way that I was affording myself grace of being an adolescent, like really trying to extend that to like Mm. everyone else and not just like the people who I was mad at, but also like my own friends, like just really trying to frame everyone's actions in the context of the time period and in the context of the surroundings and like what we were dealing with. And that, yeah, that really was like a cornerstone of writing. Well, also like, there's a little pettiness.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the truth is actually, I actually had this note while I was reading it all in all seriousness is that I actually thought it was very interesting that in a lot of sections of the book, you almost come off as like self-deprecating in situations where I'm like, I don't know, Kendra, I feel like you could give yourself more credit here. Like there were definitely moments where I was like, no, but that is really fucked up, you know? And like you, I could tell that as a writer, you were trying to make sure that like you were being fair and I was yep. like, I don't know. I don't think you have to be fair there. I think, I think you, co- I think, you know, that should, should not have happened. Okay. Another favorite question. Super important. You got to get on the record on this. What is a word you can never spell correctly on the first try?
1: Oh, uh, I can give you two Renaissance
0: Ooh. and
1: uh, receive. Like I know Ugh. the rule. I know the rule. It's just not going to happen. It's not, not, gonna not happen. coming out right.
0: <laughs> I love it. I don't know if anyone's ever said Renaissance and that's a word that, I struggle with. So I have to say renaissance, but I don't know that that helps me. because Now that I'm saying that out loud, I'm like, I don't know if I could spell renaissance, but that's what we say renaissance. (laughs) Um, okay. This is a very small, small question, but also very important to me personally. I need to know about the ice skating. I need to know about the spins. I need to know about the dizziness moment. (laughs) Do you get dizzy? I was a dancer. We used to spot, but like a lot of turns you're still feeling a little sick.
1: Yeah. I, so I still skate and how, Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I haven't since, like, June, because my rink is closed again. But, okay. um, yeah, no, I still skate. And usually, like, the first the first time I go back and do a spin, like, I am dizzy. After that, it's like, whatever. It's it's wow. fine. It's really, it's like the same thing. <laughs> Falling was, like, never an issue for me. Um, I think it's just, like, things that you really, your body just gets used to it. Um, Got it. As, as time goes by, I... I wasn't afraid of falling until I, I broke my elbow, actually, while I was working at a school, um, mm. one of the school that I talk about in southern New York in the book. Not a okay. g- terrible place to have broken my elbow because that Got was it. a terrible school. Okay. <laughs> they were not worth it. But yeah, no, after I, I broke my elbow doing twizzles, um, which are the moves down the ice where... Olympics are coming up if you watch ice dancing. Uh, the twizzles are the ones that they do side by side down the ice turning in sync in sync. Okay. <laughs> okay. I
0: I love an Olympic sport. I yeah. love an ice skating <laughs> moment. I have been known to do my own impersonations in my socks of the spin where you, I try to get really low and grab my foot and spin in a right. circle. I know that's figure skating. I don't think they do that in the ice dancing. No, they, I
1: mean, you'll pose to get, you get some partnered uh, sit yeah. spins.
0: Yes. Yeah. There's, no, there's nothing greater to me except for when they do the one where they take the leg up and then they or the, the, the Yeah. And yeah. then they take it and then they spin and then they go down. You know, it's like ugh, the spins for me is everything.
1: No, it's funny. That's also my husband's favorite thing. Like every, he doesn't really pay attention, but every so often, like I was watching skating all this weekend and he'll just mm. walk by as someone's doing a spin and he's like, that's the stuff.
0: Yeah. It's just, it's great. <laughs> Who, okay. You'll remember, I can't remember her name. Brunette, very small, very thin, very flexible Olympian figure skater. Um, and she,
1: was... oh, the one who's not Sarah Hughes is who you're thinking of, and I know I can see her in my head, but I cannot. Um...
0: She, well, she was so flexible, and her spins were so insane. Sasha, Sasha, Sasha Cohen, Sa- Sasha Cohen. Yeah. she was my. <laughs> idol because the (laughs) flexibility and the spins it was there I don't know if she I don't know if she was any good but I know that at the end of her routines I think whoever was like I don't remember if this was her I think I was in college but I will never forget some you know that stupid Romeo and Juliet song that everyone ice skates to oh
1: yes of course yes
0: so this person had done it I think it was her and at the end the announcer was like Everyone else skates to Romeo and Juliet. She is Juliet. (laughs) And I will never forget. I died laughing. I I was definitely in college. My friend Chanel will remember. But like it was so I mean, I have a passion for Olympic sports in case you can't tell. But the figure skating. I'm so
1: excited. I mean, I like I said, I spent all weekend watching skating. That is like my decompression. I literally, I just sat on the couch. That's all I did. And I will watch, I watch every event. I watched some of even like juniors. Like that's how, yeah.
0: I love this. I love this. (laughs) Well, the thing that's so great about the Olympics, which I know is like the corniest, dumbest part, is like when they try to tell you the stories and then you like get invested in the people. I just love that. Last time- When they did the curling and they had the like (laughs) Korean curling team and they called themselves the Breakfast Club and they gave themselves the nicknames for different breakfasts. So one of them was like pancake, and one of them was sunny for sunny side up eggs. And like, (laughs) I love those women. I was I was like, if they lose, I can never watch the Olympics again. Like it was so crazy. But, anyways. Uh, this really got off on a tangent but oh, i mean no, that's fine we needed I, to talk I, about skating yes
1: <laughs> but no yeah to answer no to answer your to answer your question like i my body is just used to it at this point at, at age 34 now like falling is a little scarier yeah um Ugh. but i yeah it's, it is actually no it's not even a little scarier it's a lot scarier like there's certain jumps like that i will only do if i'm on the ice with my coach got but it. then there's stuff that like my body just knows how to do like and has known since I was 15. So I like it might not look great anymore, but uh oh it could do it. Are you
0: like the person during like the free skate at the rink who's in the middle doing like all these cool things and like no. the kids are like, oh
1: God, no because so good. no, because in LA, like LA has like a great figure skating culture. Uh oh. and I like kind of didn't realize how amazing it was out here. But even at my rink, which is like a really a tiny, tiny rink in Van Nuys, like there's a girl there who's being scouted uh, to skate for Armenia. Like, so oh. I am, I am heart, and she's great. She also has, she will hit you on the ice. She'll just skate right into you if you get in her way. Uh, <laughs> but like, I am nowhere near as impressive as I, as I once was. I used to another tangent, but like actually kind of connected to the book in a way. <laughs> um, when I lived in New York, I would go skate at Rockefeller Center mm. um, in the mornings. And there were, Times where like the woman would kind of just like let me go on, just because they needed. Like sometimes they do that like crane shot, mm. and they like like to have people on the ice. Right, 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 And so she would just like let me go on and skate. <laughs> That's awesome. To, like, I yeah. love this
0: for you. You're like your yeah. mo- your fit moment of fame.
1: Well, yeah. And like also there was just like I-, I got some interesting comments when I when I would skate there. Like I I literally had one tour like one family come up to me and say like. You're the best black skater I've ever seen. Wait, oh. Like that kind of thing would like would literally happen. Um it's
0: connected, connected. Yeah. Yeah. It was
1: it was very, very interesting.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh. No, the best black skater is backflip. Sierra, Sierra yeah, Bonalee right. No, right and that's the
1: thing like I'm hardly like you, you got your Surya you right. have Vanessa James like now you've got Star Andrews like I'm I, I don't know these be people the yet ice.
0: I don't know these people but I'm hoping that I'm gonna learn about them this year at the Van-
1: Olympics Vanessa James is going back to the Olympics with a little bit of controversy but she'll be there for okay, Canada
0: Googling. I cannot wait very excited <laughs> yeah. uh wait oh there was also a pair's in Canada, it was like a black woman and a white. No, that's, guy. Vin- that's Vanessa. Oh, that's her. Yeah. I remember
1: mm-hmm. very yeah. well.
0: <laughs> Loved. She wasn't.
1: That. She was with France, but now she. Now she's. Canadian.
0: Oh, okay. So my husband is white, and I used to say to him during the Olympics last time, "It's us, honey. That's us."
1: I mean, my my white husband also yesterday suggested that we do skating lessons together, and I was like, "I no." <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, no. I love this for him. Maybe he will skate with me, and we could. Pre- I could pretend to be you. Yeah. <laughs> Some people skate to Kendra James. She is Kendra. Uh, okay, we're gonna wrap up here. Yeah. I'm getting crazy, but uh, this is a serious question for real. You grow up writing. You love to write. You do your live journals. You do all these things. What does it mean for you? I guess on the eve of your book coming out, for you to have a book coming out.
1: I mean, it's still very surreal because like, I mean, like you mentioned, like I, I started writing like fan fiction about like Sirius Black's long lost daughter. Like that is. I don't know what that means. Oh, that's like, (laughs) I basically, I used to write Harry Potter fan fiction on like fanfiction.net. And so it's like, (laughs) it is very surreal to know um, that like, this is actually going to be a published work. And those people that I used to, like, write fan fiction with and that I used to role play with, they, like, also, I didn't really get to get into it so much in the book because that would just be a whole other thing. But they were so much my anchors Mm. while I was at boarding school because I talk, like, I talk a lot about the concept of, like, the friends um, that are, like, kind of chosen for you and then, like, the friends that you actually get to choose for yourself out of, like, common interests and bonds. And... A lot of my online friends, like people who I had simply never met before and wouldn't meet even until years later, like they got me through high school and we all wrote together. Like we did mm-hmm. like these communal writing groups. And so it's like really crazy. I'm the first one out of that group to have a book published. And it, it's it's really, really quite surreal to know that like I came from that world and have managed to translate it into a book. <laughs>
0: oh my God, I love this. Okay, yeah. so that leads me perfectly into this question, which is what would Kendra at Taft think of Kendra now?
1: I don't know if she could, com- like I actually don't know if like my younger self could comprehend that. Like I just got off, before the last thing I did before the pandemic really hit hard was I was on a Star Trek cruise, like mm. for my job while also like, writing a book my younger self would not be able to comprehend the fact that those things are being done Um, you're doing those things yes yeah (laughs) or like i am doing those things not only am i doing those things like i'm getting paid money to do those things it's just like something that i didn't think was possible um and a lot of that like especially because like when i was at taft um i feel like my my parents in some ways were very focused on me going into um going into finance. Mm. Uh like my cause my dad was a was a banker. And so just the fact that I've managed to completely like get away from that world entirely and just like forge my own thing in entertainment is yeah, I don't know what you I'm getting say. emotional. I'm so
0: proud of you. It's so <laughs> yeah. cool. I like I'm literally gonna cry. I've been so oh, emotional no. recently. I don't I just think it's so great. Like I can't speak for your younger self, but I feel like if my emotions are any indication, she's very proud of you. Like you did the thing. It's so fucking cool. Um, Okay. I only have two more questions. One is for people who like this book, what are some other books that you might recommend to them that are maybe in conversation with what you did with admissions?
1: Yeah, I always recommend Black Ice by Lorreen Carey. Okay. Um, and that's a book by a woman. It came out like 91 or late 80s, early 90s. Okay. Um, and it, she went to St. Paul's in the 70s. St. Paul's is another uh, boarding school. It's, I believe, has like either the largest or the second to largest endowment. Like, I think it's, okay. it's close to a billion. it's yeah um they are a very elite very wealthy very rich school and she writes about her experiences there as a black student in the 70s coming out of uh, academic scholarship program and that book we read we actually read that book for an English class when I was at Taft and it really stuck with me so I I highly recommend that one and then I mean my the rest of my list for this book is like very, it's all very silly, I feel like, because I there's books to recommend, like the books that I read to prep myself, like to quote unquote prep myself for boarding school. I loved books like Spying on Miss Mueller, which was like a World mm. War II boarding school story. I loved Little Men, which was also like a boarding school sequel to Little Women. Um, I read so much of that sort of stuff when I was younger. And then just also like, as much as books shaped me, like film and television did too. Like mm. uh, you've read it. it, it film and television plays into this book yeah. quite a lot. Um, yeah. So I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like, I would say Black Ice is definitely the biggest main one. Um, but then okay. I think when you once you finished reading, you'll find other things to dig into just from like some yeah. of the titles named.
0: <laughs> definitely, definitely. And then last one: if you could have one person, dead or alive, read this book, who would you want it to be?
1: Oh my God. Um. I mean, honestly, it would be very interesting. I think he I think he has passed away, but I I feel like this book should be in conversation in some ways or in a lot of ways with the stories of other um black students who have been to Taft. And so um the first black student who went to Taft, like that would be a big one to like see what his opinion and perspective um would have been on this. <laughs>
0: I love that. That's a great answer. I was thinking Emma, but you know.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, again, like I'm trying, I try to steer away from the petty. Well, that's what I'm here for.
0: I'm like the little (laughs) petty, the little petty princess on your shoulder. Like, here, Emma, let me mail this to you, you (laughs) little bitch. Um, Kendra, this was so, so great. Thank you so much. Congratulations on your book. People, it is officially out in the world right now. You can get Kendra's book. It was her birthday, the day the book came out, so you should definitely get it as a birthday present That's for Kendra. That's all I want. Yeah, for your <laughs> yeah. So, Kendra, thank you so so much um, for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. Thank you so much for listening and thank you to Kendra for being my guest. I'd also like to thank Roxanne Jones for coordinating this interview. Remember, the Stacks Book Club pick for January is passing by Nella Larson. We will be discussing the book on the podcast on Wednesday, January 26th with Cree Miles. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the Stacks and join the Stacks pack. Make sure you're subscribed to the Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at the Stacks pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Our editor is Christian Duenas and our graphic designer is Robin McCrike. Our theme music is from Tagiragis and The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas.